Hi there. Welcome to the Bandroom Podcast. My name is Dylan Maddox. And I'm Kate Nishimura. How's it going, Kate? It's going great, Dylan. How about you? Uh, I'm, I'm doing better this week, you know. This was the, one of the smoother recordings we've done. I know. It was great. Um, it has been uh, a bit of a strange week because it was uh, our exam week here at Cambrian College. So I cleared out my office and I shut my door for the my office door for the last time. Yeah. How does that and feel? It was mixed emotions. I kind of like opened the door and stared into the room for two minutes, like a solid two minutes, just with the memories flowing by, <laughs> the stupid jokes I've made, Aww. the silly things that have happened in that room. But anyway. No, I mean, congratulations on finishing up your time in a very special place. You know, I think you did a lot yeah. of good there, so you should be happy about that. Well, thank you. Yeah, I know it was, uh, yeah, like I said, mixed feelings. I don't know. I really have no words, but yeah. I do have words about something, and that is about today's episode. <laughs> we were so, so lucky to be joined for our, I want to say this is number four. For I was going to say that series. earlier. I think it's the fourth installment of the sectional series. Yeah. Yeah. And today we were joined by tubist extraordinaire, among many other titles, uh, Dr. Karen Balmer, who is um, professor of music in low brass at Memorial University, as well as uh, acting as the associate dean this, mm -hmm. for the past year. So we are very grateful that she could fit us into her very busy schedule. Yeah. And yeah, it was it was just a great conversation. I, I think what I said near the end, just it was very refreshing to not talk about band. I know this is the band room, but <laughs> it was just, it was nice to talk about music and it was nice to talk about being a human. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's still centered around band because it's so much of the life lessons and things that we learn in the band room and, and where all of that leads uh, beyond the band room itself. So it's still very much connected, but yeah, I agree. It was so nice to just step outside of that for a little bit and talk more about being a well-rounded musician and, you know, approaches to the age-old work-life balance dilemma. And uh, yes. um, yeah, she had such, such great thoughts to offer about mindfulness and uh, just being, you know, an observer of your own experiences and things like that. And I really think there's something in there for everybody, no matter what stage of mm -hmm. your musicianship um, you're in at this very moment. Yeah, it, it was it was really great conversation. Mm -hmm. Another thing that's really great is if you could consider doing us a favor. And what favor would that be, Kate Nishimura? <laughs> <laughs> that would be if you could head over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is that you listen to podcasts. And please give the Bandroom Podcast a rating and a review, hopefully a good one at that, because this helps other people to find the podcast and be able to listen to these fantastic perspectives like what we heard today with Karen Bulmer. It was fantastic. Mm -hmm. And thank you to all of you that have gone to Apple Podcasts and done that. It, I, it means the world to us. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for doing that. Uh, we also had the chance to record a fun bonus episode. <laughs> it seems these bonus episodes have just become us talking about times we've 
fallen on our face and now we can laugh about it. Yeah. I think it's good to have a space to talk about that kind of thing though, because it happens to everybody. We all make mistakes. We all have weird, awkward moments in our musical experiences. So it's, it's nice to have a place to air those, uh, those experiences with others who are understanding, you know? So it's, it's good. Mm -hmm. And how can people listen to that bonus episode, Dylan? Oh, well, thank you for asking, Kate. Uh, first, first and foremost, they can go uh, visit patreon.com slash bandroompod where you can hear today's episode with Karen Balmer as well as many other exciting, thrilling, life-changing, hilarious, wistfully amazing, okay, I'm done, uh, <laughs> stories from other guests uh, as well as other bonus content including Zoom Hangs with us uh, which is going to be happening next week mm-hmm. but by the time this comes out it will be probably the day of, as well as uh, merchandise and other things like that. Mm -hmm. So go check out patreon.com slash bandroompod. And yes, it does take more bucks, please, if you want that bonus content. (laughs) That was so funny. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so uh, rather than me talking about Patreon, without further ado, here is our conversation with Dr. Karen Balmer. Okay, here we are for another exciting Bandroom podcast and the, I can't remember what installment of our sectional series, but it is a number for that series. And um, today we are so very lucky and excited um, to be joined by Tubist, professor of music, currently serving as associate dean at Memorial University in Newfoundland, Dr. Karen Balmer. Welcome to the Bandroom podcast. Thank you so much. I'm really delighted to be here. Yeah, this is great. I've had the great opportunity of having so many of your students uh, as colleagues and even roommates. (laughs) Um, So, (laughs) sorry. uh, Yeah, there you go. (laughs) And so many of your your uh, colleagues as well are are, are mine. So it's it's so great to uh, to get to finally meet you and talk with you because I've only heard amazing things. So no pressure. Uh, Likewise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm wondering if we could uh, start at the beginning and could you tell us where, why, and how you started your musical journey? Sure. I grew up in London, Ontario, so sort of a medium-sized city um, in southern Ontario, and I was definitely part of a musical family, so there were no professional musicians in my family, but... Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of um, musical interest in my family. So my mom played the piano and my grandfather, one grandfather was really into bands and brass band music. And another grandfather was a barbershop singer. And both my parents had come through this really small town in Southern Ontario, but that had like a really active community band and school band program, which was I think quite unusual at that Mm -hmm. time. So it was kind of just part of, part of life as a kid. So I took piano lessons and, um, I have to say that didn't really take, that wasn't really, a, <laughs> um, I wasn't a really good, uh, piano student. And, um, but I kind of, I, I sort of, I kept it up and, um, up to grade eight and it wasn't really until high school that I got really, really into music. So we had a, you know, this is the story many professional musicians have that they had really wonderful inspirational teachers and a really wonderful program in high school. So, I sang in the choirs and um, I actually played flute. I started playing flute in grade seven 
and mm-hmm. played flute all the way through high school, but then halfway through high school, um, switched to tuba because we needed a tuba in the band. Right. And um, then I went to music school. I decided I wanted to study music and I kind of chose the tuba by default. I thought it would be less competitive um, <laughs> to get into music school. And right. um, and I, I really had no thought of being a performer. I just, mm-hmm. I was sort of like, I want to teach music and uh, it doesn't really matter what I play. I'll just go get my degree and I'll never play mm-hmm. again. And um, mm-hmm. which is, I will, you know, that's horrifying <laughs> that I thought <laughs> that that's what was an appropriate life path <laughs> for a music <laughs> educator. Um, but that's not what happened. I got really, really into playing and practicing in my first mm-hmm. couple of years of university and um, decided I wanted to pursue it professionally. Hey, there you go. But well, you, you were a, a flautist first. I started on the flute, yeah. <laughs> because this isn't the first time I've heard this. Is it some kind of just the the fact that 90% of your air is going to the atmosphere? Do you think that's what makes good <laughs> is that... tuba players, the transfer? <laughs> <laughs> From flute, you mean? Yeah. I wanted to capture more of my air. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I played flute because it was very, you know, when I was... Uh, um, you know, when we started band in grade seven, like I was this very straight laced, um, you know, like smart, nice, mm-hmm. responsible, uh, girl. And I'm, you know, I think I'm still all those things. And so <laughs> flute, I just really gravitated towards the flute because it was just like, that seemed like the appropriate instrument. My mom had played the flute. Mm-hmm. And then in high school, I think I was kind of looking for ways to rebel a little bit. Um, but so I was you way played too the much. Yeah, like I was way too much of of, of a goody two shoes to actually yeah. do anything like criminal Truly or rebellious. like yeah. actually edgy. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So you've heard it here, was. listener. If you want to rebel, the tuba is your <laughs> way. Yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> and what? Oh, what, that's so after, funny. Um, <laughs> where was your your path after after high school? After high school, I went and did an undergraduate degree at um, Western University. It was called the University of Western Ontario at the time. Mm -hmm. So I did a a degree there in tuba performance. And then I ended up going to this um, little conservatory in Florida for a couple of years. And that it's kind of a weird, um, (laughs) it's weird how I ended up there. I was going to go to Boston University because there was a teacher I wanted to study with. And Mm -hmm. he ended up moving to um, Arizona State in the summer before I was supposed to go study with him. And so, you know, I wasn't going to go to Boston. Wait, are we talking about Sam Palafian? Yeah. Yeah. So I really wanted to study with Sam Palafian. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I'd been accepted to Boston university and had my heart set on that. And then he called me up in the middle of the summer and said, listen, I'm really sorry, Mm -hmm. but I got the job and Mm -hmm. in Arizona. So he was moving and, but he had a former student who, um, was teaching at this little conservatory in Florida and they, mm-hmm. it, they, they were trying to make themselves into the Juilliard of the South and they were, they gave free tuition. Like you didn't pay tuition if you went and you got a living right. stipend. And I was like, eh, sure. I'll, you know, I'll do that for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And then it was actually through that. So that was like a sort of a performance diploma sort of mm-hmm. um, situation. But it was at that. So it was called the Herod conservatory. It doesn't exist as the Herod Conservatory anymore, but there were a number of people, um, faculty members at that conservatory who had affiliations with Yale, who'd either, there there were a couple of people who had taught at Yale and there were some people who had studied at Yale and it it was not a place I'd ever considered going to study music. So that's, I got the idea that 
oh, that would be a cool place to study music. Um, and it, it turned out they had a really good tuba teacher. So I auditioned and went to Yale for my um, master's. And then I did a doctorate there as well. Oh, great. You know, and yeah. it's, it's I, uh, as I mentioned before the interview, I got an audition at Yale whenever I was auditioning for my master's. And um, and didn't get in. Long story short, but I ended up marrying a harpist who did go to Yale. So I'm constantly ah. haunted by the greatness of that school. <laughs> <laughs> but but no, but a really wonderful music program. And you know, there's so many programs that are affiliated with producing great orchestral players or great whatevers. And um, I find that anyone who's come out of Yale is a, like a very, very well-rounded musician and artist who has, you know, many different interests, even outside of music. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've reflected a lot, um, you know, on my time at Yale over the years. And I think one of the things that was so striking about it when I look back is it's like, there wasn't really a curriculum. I mean, or it was like <laughs> very bare bones. So like the, the, there wasn't that much that I was required to do. Mm-hmm. And and then you were also allowed and even encouraged to take any course in Yale College, which is so the School of Music is like a professional school, and Yale College is just sort of what they is the what they call the undergraduate um, okay. Yale. And so you know, I took all these courses in like religious studies and philosophy and um, just for kicks, just because I could. <laughs> and my classmates at the School of Music were doing the same thing, and so it was a really really rich learning environment being around people who were really kind of following their passions and figuring out what was important to them and having the freedom in the structure of the program to, to pursue mm-hmm. those interests. And, um, yeah, so it really was, you're absolutely right. Like there, there's a real, um, I, I feel that the well-rounded and the really broad view of what it means to be an artist was really, um, fostered there. Yeah. That's great. That's wonderful. And so could you tell us about your path to Memorial University, maybe what led you there and what your current position looks like? Sure. Um, so when I finished my, um, my studies, I moved back to Ontario and started freelancing. So I was, you know, trying to freelance as a tuba player and mm-hmm. teach privately. And my first sort of real gig was a sabbatical replacement position at the University of Prince Edward Island. So the brass instructor there went on sabbatical. And so I was there 20 years ago, um, exactly 20 years ago. It was in 2001. And so I was there for the winter semester. um, And I really loved, it was my first time being in Atlantic Canada. Mm -hmm. I loved Atlantic Canada. I loved being on an island. I found PEI kind of small for my taste. I I really love it. But when I was thinking about my life, I thought, "Eh, this is maybe small, but you know, Memorial has a really good music (laughs) program. So I kind of sort of set my sights um, on this job. But then, you know, I went back to Toronto. I mean, there's already someone doing this job Mm -hmm. here. So (laughs) um, I went back to Toronto and freelanced and taught privately. I taught at Western for five years and I taught at the University of Windsor during that time. You know, so just, you know, doing what musicians do, cobbling things together. Mm -hmm. And then eventually the person who held the low brass position at Memorial retired. And um, I did not apply for the job. Oh. (laughs) It just didn't, yeah, it didn't feel like the right time Hmm. for a bunch of sort of personal and professional reasons. I thought, eh, this doesn't feel like the right time. And so 
they filled the position, but that person ended up leaving after a couple of years. Um, mm -hmm. And so the job was advertised again and I applied and, and uh, that's how it worked out. That's how it worked awesome. out. So yeah. And so in terms of my position here, it's, uh, it's, I have to say it's really varied over the years. It's, it's one of the neat things about academia is you within the job, your, your job can really evolve. So my official title is, is, um, associate professor of low brass. So I okay. teach tuba, trombone, and euphonium lessons. Mm -hmm. And then over the years, I've taught a number of other things. So almost everything under the sun, <laughs> at least once. But then, you know, for many years, I ran them on brass ensemble. And um, more recently, I've taught a lot of courses in pedagogy. And then I also teach this course um, where we talk about mindfulness and things like that. So mm -hmm. it's really varied. And then a year ago, uh, not quite a year ago, I took on the position of associate dean of teaching and learning. So now um, I have a little bit more. Full plate. Yeah. Yeah, full plate. <laughs> um, so I play a much, um, much bigger role in the leadership mm -hmm. and administration yeah. of the school. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a really interesting path. And in well, I, I'm from PEI, so it's, it's mm. like this is there's too many too many crossovers here today. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I'm glad you upgraded islands. Size wise. Well, I wouldn't say upgraded. <laughs> I was I got to go back to PEI for the first time um, a couple of years ago. We did a big uh, cross country camping trip, my family and I, and oh, we spent nice. a few days on PEI, yeah. and it was it was nice to be back. I have to say. Yeah, and it's also cool to hear about kind of that full circle thing of you going back to Western, and then even further, if we think about who's at Western now, it's one of your past students, Jonathan Rousel, who's yeah one of, one of the tuba instructors there. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, it's yeah, it's really cool. And John's actually been doing a little bit of teaching for a Memorial this year too. So it's, oh okay, um, yeah, because yeah. he's originally from yeah. there. The cycle continues. <laughs> yeah, it it really yeah. does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, you just mentioned the, your, your mindfulness course at MUN and mindfulness for musicians, as well as I know you do a lot of uh, movement and, and yoga work as well. So we were wondering, where did this interest in, in these areas begin and how do you see it uh, helping your students? Yeah, um, well, I had an interest in meditation from my early 20s. I sort of had these many kind of failed attempts to become enlightened <laughs> I would try meditating for a couple of weeks and um and then it wouldn't work uh so I would give up and then revisit it again in a few years but I've always had kind of an interest in that um in that sort of thing and then I it, it's interesting when I think about the yoga and the movement because as an undergraduate I actually did a minor in dance I did a whole bunch of, oh, of cool. dance courses even and I never did dance as a kid like that's a whole other story how I got into dance um as an undergraduate but um, but I was, but I, I did a big study in my last year of my undergraduate on the, the relationship between movement and, and performing. So I think that interest kind of started there. Mm -hmm. And so I, they're, they're the, they, these were kind of both going along in the background, like this interest in meditation and interest in movement. And then it was sort of, you know, maybe around the time I came to Munns, that was 15 years ago, I'd been practicing yoga really regularly in Toronto, mostly as a form of exercise. But I really started the, I, I'd had this kind of low grade um, performance anxiety. Mm -hmm. I, it's, it wasn't even performance anxiety, just like low grade life anxiety, like yeah. <laughs> right. anxiety about like how I'm performing as a human in my life. 
mm-hmm. um, which I'd had since childhood. And, and it was, it was really starting to get in the way of my enjoyment of being a musician. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was really finding that the yoga practice was having a calming effect and just giving me sort of the philosophical basis of that practice was giving me just different tools and different ways of thinking about, um, some of the struggles that I was facing in, um, you know, as a musician. And then I was, I did establish a meditation practice that's been pretty consistent now for, um, well over a decade and also found that really just helped me, um, you know, the meditation doesn't necessarily calm you down, but it sort of helps you relate to your experience in a different way. Um, mm-hmm. And for me, it was mainly like starting to understand that when I was experiencing um, anxiety or stress or, or you know, whatever, anger, frustration, that I was having an experience that was temporary, that wasn't going to last forever. So I had right. a little bit of distance from the experience, whereas um, prior to that, it just sort of felt like, this is just the way the world is. And this is the way I am. Like there was no differentiation between me and my experience and and what I was feeling. So I found both the meditation and the um, movement practices really helped me to kind of um, be more grounded in my body, which just naturally kind of helps you um, come into the present moment and come out of your head Mm -hmm. and then start to have this different relationship with my experience where I wasn't quite so um, caught up Right. And, um, and then it just, you know, felt like I had a little bit more room to maneuver when difficult feelings, um, came up as they tend to. Yeah. <laughs> oh, human being human. Oh, humans. <laughs> oh, silly, silly, silly. No, it's, it's really, it's interesting to think about. And, um, it's, you know, something that uh, both Kate and I's mentor, uh, Jillian McKay, uh, certainly mm, yeah. she's a, a big meditator um, and not, something I have, I have not explored, but um, I, the idea of, of what you were talking about kind of, I don't know, would managing being <laughs> a good word, um, you know, because I've been thinking a lot of uh, recently about s- students coming in and being like, oh, I just wish I wasn't stressed anymore. I wish I didn't have any anxiety, but then thinking, well, they do play a role <laughs> in being a yeah. human. And, and, and I think just kind of what you mentioned, just identifying it and and kind of telling yourself yeah this is temporary and it you know has a purpose is is an important thing to identify yeah and and not even just telling yourself that it's temporary but but you know when you're meditating or when you're sort of um sort of applying mindfulness in a more free range way just kind of in your life um Mm -hmm. it's you know, a lot of the practice is about just tuning in to what your experience is mm-hmm. and just sort of like really becoming curious about sort of the intensity and the texture and, you know, just the, like all the nuances of the feeling. And so what you notice is that it does change. Like you don't have to tell yourself anything. You just, you notice that things vary in intensity. They vary in, um, you know, in sort of, uh, like gravity or weight. And so once you're able to sort of step back a little bit and and start to see that you just, it, it, I feel like that's a a lot of where the kind of calming Mm -hmm. of meditation practice comes from is just that sense of like, Oh, right. This is an experience and it feels like this in this moment. Right. Um, but if I, if I observe it closely, it 
in a few minutes, it might feel really differently. Yeah, I heard somewhere that it's it's the act of being an observer of your own experiences and having the ability to separate yourself from what's happening so that you can notice things and notice how things come in and out of your experience, I think. So all of what you have said connects so much to, to that and to my experience with it as well. Yeah. And, and there's this really, there's interesting research that, you know, often if we feel something distressing or uncomfortable, then we actively try to get rid of it yeah. and to change it. And mm-hmm. there's actually all this um, sort of recent research showing that that, that actually strengthens both the perception of the feeling and the physiological response mm, to yeah. the the perceived discomfort. And so um, kind of like attacking it head on and trying to get rid of it, just it really doesn't work. Yeah. And so sort of having a, a more of a detached um, stance to it where you sort of like acknowledge it, you, you accept that it's there and then kind of let it make its way through then... Um, it will kind of, you know, subside or at least change on its yeah. own. Yeah, definitely. That's so interesting. I imagine that many musicians, including our listeners and even ourselves, um, would see the benefit of this kind of practice, but might not know where to start. So yeah. I was wondering if you have any suggestions for things that people who are listening could try right away or right after the episode <laughs> to uh, to decrease anxiety or just prioritize well-being in general. Yeah, it's so it's so tough, and I I think oftentimes when we think about prioritizing our well-being, it it we go to kind of like big projects. So like yeah. I need to meditate for fifteen minutes every day, or I need to, you know adopt some sort of exercise regime that looks a certain way and um there it's just too big and then it's hard to get started and it's hard to keep it going yeah mm-hmm. so i'm a real fan um of sort of finding ways to just insert little micro practices hmm. into the day that don't take a lot of extra time but that just sort of keep reinforcing really briefly but repeatedly throughout your day that um you know just sort of reminding yourself to just bring it down a notch so things I use is I'll often have like a password on my computer that is a reminder to Mm -hmm. uh, like take a breath or um so it's just every time I have to unlock my computer, I'm reminded and I have to change it a lot because I'll just stop, you know, my fingers will just do the, <laughs> we'll just right. do the typing and I won't. So, but I'll, I'll, I'll put something on my computer to just remind me to sort of pause mm-hmm. um, and yeah. do something like that. Um, you know, I think any bit of movement is great. It doesn't have to be big, like a walk around the block. Um mm-hmm. And I think a really critical piece to all of this is find little sort of micro practices and really start to check in with how you feel before and how you feel after. Um, and it, at first, you know, what I find with a lot of people is that, you know, in, in a lot of the teaching I do, I ask people to sort of check in with their bodies and sort of like, okay, well, how, how are you feeling like? What's your energy level, your stress level? Are you hunger, hungry or do you feel satisfied? And, and how does your body tell you these things? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like half the people are like, 
I don't know. <laughs> it's like the first, yeah. like we forget that we're having, that we have bodies and they give yeah. us information. So, you know, that's really common if, if people sort of check in and they like, it just, that ha- that was me for a really long time. But, you know, if you learn to sort of, sort of, sort of check in just like very softly, it doesn't have to be a big analytical thing. And then, you know, do something like take a walk around the block and then just notice has anything shifted, even if it's just a little bit, those mm-hmm. little shifts, um, add up over time uh, and they give you so much more information about what works for you and what doesn't work for you and you know what stresses you out and what actually calms you down it's often not not what we'd expect that calms us down yeah that's really good advice I've been reflecting on a lot of this stuff myself recently because I've realized that the things that often you would assume would be calming practices, like (laughs) sitting and like relaxing intentionally, taking a bath, like doing these kinds of things. I find myself just sitting there like worrying about things and thinking about things. And I've learned that I actually have to do something physical in order to get myself to calm down. So the walk around the block, even if you don't have time to do a whole workout or whatever, but just just step outside for five minutes and come back and try again. And almost every time in my experience anyway, I feel a a real reset in just doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And I I mean, I'm glad you brought that up about like, if you try to sit quietly or take a bath, like you, we always think we have to go, um, like like into stillness or something. Yeah. Yeah. And (laughs) you know, like if I think that if I'm driving my car down the highway at full speed and then I like, yank the emergency brake like that's not awesome there you know (laughs) and so I think humans are the same that we often we have to kind of like downshift a little bit and so um and you know a lot of times if you're in the midst of a busy day then trying to sort of like lie on the floor and get get all zen for 15 minutes and then rev yourself right back up for the next thing you've got to do like I I don't know how realistic that is for many people Mm -hmm. So something like a walk, you get outside, um, the, the, when, when our visual system opens up as it sort of naturally tends to do when we're out in nature or we can view the horizon, um, that is naturally stimulating of our parasympathetic nervous system. And so, um, we spend all this time like looking at screens. So we're looking at things that are fixed distance or practicing our music. Everything is, so we're very focused at things that are like one distance away and um, that actually drives our sympathetic arousal or our fight or flight response. So just mm-hmm. even just like getting outside, moving your body, letting your gaze widen out a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's like magic. Yeah. But it's it's like, you know, I think this is this is something it's it's really it's important to sort of manage expectations around some of these practices, too, mm-hmm. because the benefits in the moment tend to be super subtle and so right. it, it's easy I think we often want like really dramatic results from things we do that's like sort of like culturally <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah. we want to just we want to have this like night and day experience and so I think oftentimes the the results are are much 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 more subtle mm-hmm. um, and so you know this sort of practice of tuning in with your body like it it enables you to start capturing some of those little shifts um, a little bit more effectively. And, um, and then those, those, those little tiny shifts, they really do add up over time. And it's, it's so great to, it, to think about it that way. Cause I, I guess, especially as musicians where when we think about 
a, a good way of practicing. It's not going in there for six hours at a time and trying to accomplish everything at <laughs> once, right? And just like you said. Yes, it is. This- <laughs> if any of my students are listening. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Three hours a day. Mouth peace on your face. Sorry, Dylan. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's fine. <laughs> but, but the idea of taking small bites and it, it doesn't have to be, yeah. you know, you don't have to go um, st- study meditation um, somewhere in the mountains <laughs> to become right. to begin this process. To begin this process, because I think a lot of people maybe that that might be one of the things that they're a little scared of taking that dive in or or whatever it is. Um, yeah, and I, I feel like most of us don't need more things to feel like we're kind of a little yeah. bit bad at, or maybe not quite. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like. I need- I find a lot of the people that I work with and there's sort of this general feeling of like wishing they would sort of do a bit better at life. And so most of us don't need to set ourselves up with these like crazy (laughs) expectations and then be constantly upset with ourselves if we're not able to meet them. So yeah, I'm still trying to jog. So we'll we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And after, you know, hearing about all this stuff in in your uh, mindfulness for musicians course, I'm like, and I'm thinking I should have went to Munn. With Aaron Good, anyway. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Those were good times. Yeah. This is an an aside, but I remember uh, I competed uh, the first time at National Kiwanis Music Festival in Anaganish, Nova Scotia. And I, you know, Mm -hmm. from PEI, I didn't know anyone and was scared to talk to anyone as my first kind of national thing. But then I remember looking off to my side at one point and there was four gentlemen from the Paddywag and Trombone Quartet (laughs) that were the most welcoming loving wonderful people who became my closest friends that week <laughs> yeah and yeah those and were s- and still are to to this day you know it was aaron yeah steven steven ivany aiden hartery and uh john williams <laughs> yeah yeah anyway yeah wonderful guys wonderful musicians yeah. yes um and and listener if you if you enjoy hearing about all of these wonderful uh, thoughts of mindfulness and meditation and, and self-betterment. Um, there's there's s- more stuff that you can hear from Karen because um, not only is she an accomplished tubist, an educator, administrator, and writer, but she's also a fellow podcaster, <laughs> which is really exciting. And um, I was wondering if you could tell us about the Music, Mind, and Movement podcast. Why did you start it? Who's it for? All that stuff. Yeah. Um, I love podcasts. (laughs) I really, really am kind of podcast, um, kind of podcast obsessed. Mm -hmm. And I, I, a few years ago when I was really getting into, um, you know, I was doing more studying more. So I'd had this movement practice and this meditation practice for many years. And then I started to do some, some more formal training because I wanted to be able to teach, um, and to, to um, bring these um, modalities into my work. And I wanted some training and support around how to do that skillfully. So I was doing all the studying and I, particularly in the movement side of things, I, there are a bunch of really, really excellent podcasts um, about movement and move, movement science and somatic movement and all these things. And like sort of interview-based podcasts, DIY, like someone who's interested in the subject and has some level of expertise and, um, you know, just decides to do it. And I was floored by how much I could learn 
by listening to podcasts. Like if, you know, mm-hmm. there are a couple that I thought were really excellent and um, I just learned so much. And there, and there were conversations about movement and about meditation that I, I, I wasn't seeing anywhere else. And so I sort of thought I could do that. And <laughs> I, um, I wanted to, I wanted to have sort of a platform for conversations, the kinds of conversations I wanted to have about musicians' health and wellness that just weren't happening in sort of, I think it's actually quite, it's changed a lot in the last um, couple of years, even there. I think that that it's musicians' health has become a much bigger thing, but even, you know, three ish years ago when I started the podcast, it was still not a, not a, um, really on people's radar. And so, um, I really wanted to have these sorts of conversations and provide a platform where people who were interested in learning more, um, could go. And what I really like about podcasts is especially if they're really well curated. So the guests are, are really good. It's kind of this one-stop shopping for a whole bunch of different perspectives and voices and approaches. And, and then you as the listener are sort of empowered to kind of like follow up on what really speaks to you. And so, yeah, so that's what I, I wanted to do. And then sort of selfishly, um, it <laughs> meant that I got to talk to a lot of people who I probably wouldn't send an email to and say, hey, would you mind like hopping on a Zoom with me for an hour? <laughs> right. But we can relate to, to that. <laughs> yeah, it's totally different when you when yeah. you um, when you ask them to be on a podcast. So um, there was a component of that, too, that it just really helped me further my own learning and understanding mm-hmm. Um, and just connect with some really, really amazing practitioners all over the world. Yeah, no, that's great. And Kate and I even were, we talked about that last week in, in our intro about during a, the pandemic, especially how lucky we are to to be talking to people every week and to be learning and and getting inspired every week. It's uh, it's kind of a, yeah, yeah. I guess you're right. It is kind of a selfish thing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing wrong with that. Maybe yeah, not selfish, maybe just like propelling our own individual learning and yes, exactly. taking initiative to have the kinds of conversations that we're interested in. <laughs> you can reframe yes. anything. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really do want to encourage uh, our listeners to go check out um, your podcast because there's, there's something for everyone there. It's not mm-hmm. just about what we were talking about, but you know, just the thrills and of being a musician and, and all of those things. And, and yeah, like you said, so many really great guests uh, and let alone your own uh, expertise and, and all of that. So please go check out Karen Balmer's podcast, which will be in our show notes for you to check out. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so we've heard you mention in another interview that in the music biz, it's really easy to fall into the trap of kind of working 24 seven. Um, but you really make a point to take the time to nurture things that you value and that that nourish you. Uh, so could you tell us about how you approach, this is the famous work-life family balance <laughs> kind of question, how you manage, you know, all of the various components of your life? Yeah, um, you know, it's definitely not sort of a, um, it's not like a recipe or not like a, a, like a, something that you sort of figure out and then it, it then you've, you've got it. Um, yeah. it's definitely more of a dynamic process where you're sort of yeah. finding some balance and then losing, losing balance. And, um, you know, I think that's just the way it is. It's, it's yeah. not, it's, it's more of a process. And so, you know, I really have tried over the, the past, um, 
particularly over the past sort of 10 years since I, my son is turning 10 in a couple of weeks. So, you know, of really trying to get more in touch with what is important to me, sort of, sort of cut through all the noise because, Mm -hmm. you know, the world will tell you in no uncertain terms what should be important to you. (laughs) And, um, so I had to really kind of do some reckoning with, with like, okay, well, is that what's important to me or are there other things that are, that are more important? And, and so really, really get clear on, on my values, sort of what do I need to, um, to feel like I'm thriving and contributing and, and contributing professionally, contributing to my community, contributing to my family, all these things. And so it's really a lot about keeping that in mind and, um, and then course correcting as necessary. And, and that means course correcting on both, both sides. So I think there's been times where I've invested a little bit too heavily on the work side and sort of my personal, you know, health, family life has, has languished a bit, but there's also been, um, times where I think I've been a little bit too, I haven't, um, pushed myself as much as I could have professionally. Mm. And, um, you know, that's also that, that can be problematic as well, because in order to sort of grow, um, as humans, we do need a certain amount of, of stress. We were talking about this pressure. So, um, (laughs) yeah, yeah. so it's definitely, it's definitely a, a balancing act and just again, being really, really clear on what's important to me. And, um, there've been times where that's meant that I have made a really conscious decision that I'm going to work less which also means I'm going to accomplish less, which also means, you know, so then I'm not going to get like the recognition that comes with, with accomplishing things. So I, you know, I, I really want to be clear about this with people that it, it, it's sometimes we have to make those hard choices about, mm-hmm. about really what we want in our lives for at any given time. And it, and it changes depending on what's going on in our lives. But, um, I think it's, I, I think often we get the message that, you know, accomplishing, achieving, um, whether that's status or money or gigs or whatever it is, is just, you know, what we should all be pursuing all the time. And, um, you know, uh, that may not be the right thing for everybody. And so Mm -hmm. it's okay to make those, those decisions, um, for your own life. And it's not easy. It's definitely not easy, but, um, Yeah. yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's something that we've talked about and, and you said it right at the beginning, there's no kind of like recipe for this. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and Kate and I have talked about, you know, the idea of balance. I, a lot of us think of it as a location, but it's really a verb yeah. and it's always <laughs> happening. <laughs> um, yeah. but, and it's a really important thing to kind of just acknowledge and be okay with, you know, and then, yeah. and then, and t- especially the things that, that you were really what's important. Um, because so often we're told like being, you know, sacrificing everything and, you know, spending your whole life in the practice room as as important as it is, you know, you still have to know how to talk to people (laughs) and be a functioning human being. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and this is also another area where I think there's actually, um, I don't think, I know there's actually a lot of research on this, Mm -hmm. um, and I know because of all the podcasts I listen to, <laughs> uh, but you know, there's actually, there's actually a lot of research, uh, that taking time for recovery, 
Mm-hmm. Um, it actually helps us perform better. Now, I don't, I don't think that taking time for recovery has to be um, in order <laughs> to boost our productivity. Yeah. <laughs> so I just want to be really clear that that's not, I think that that has value in and of itself. But yeah. if you're worried about your performance or your productivity, there's actually lots of evidence that, um, you know, giving yourself downtime, giving your brain time to kind of sort of fro- float freely and not be focused on particular tasks or problems mm-hmm. um, actually helps you to perform better. So, um, and I've definitely found that's been the case for myself that, um, mm-hmm. you know, if I can be kind of skillful and judicious about it is, you know, being, being strategic about my breaks and, um, you know, how I rest, how I recover, it just, it really helps me be more even so mm-hmm. that I'm not having the, those like nose to the grindstone and then a massive <laughs> crash. It's, it's yeah. just a little bit more smooth ups and downs. So, yeah. Yeah. I also heard you talk about the importance of, of you being a role model to your students. And it's something that, um, Wendy McCollum at Brandon talked about on this podcast as mm-hmm. well. And, yeah. you know, do I want to be that? Mm, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think it is, you know, it's definitely been on the sort of institutional conversation at Memorial, sort of a, mm-hmm. a focus on student well-being. And I often, am th- I think, yeah, this is something where if we want students to um, feel enabled to focus on their own well-being, like we also were going to have to model it that we're mm-hmm. like, yeah. we can't be sort of pushing ourselves, pushing ourselves and winning one grant after the next and, you know, just always working. And then, then our, our students get the message that that's the way to be a successful person. It's the only way to be yeah. a successful person. So I think we have to be um, really aware of what students are picking up from what we are modeling, not just what yeah. we're saying. Yeah. yeah. It's like, do, do as I say, not as I do kind of <laughs> exactly. problem. <laughs> Yeah. You have to model it too. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, sure. speaking of, uh, you know, working and being busy, I think <laughs> for a lot of musicians, uh, it's oh, young musicians specifically, it's very easy to fall into the idea that when we graduate from music school, there, there will be some kind of job knocking at the door. And mm-hmm. I know you're a great example of an artist who creates their own work and projects. We already talked about the podcast and we're going to talk about another one coming up here. Um, but I was wondering if you could talk about the importance of this in today's music world, especially. Yeah. Well, I think it's really important. I mean, yeah. I think it's absolutely vital. And and I will say, you know, before I came to the university, I um, definitely did a lot of my own projects and sort of made my own fun um, when mm-hmm. I was freelancing. I, I've done quite a bit of that at the university, but it's it's actually quite different within the context of an academic um, mm-hmm. position. You do, you have a lot of support um, yeah. for that sort of thing. So I, I just want to be really clear <laughs> that um, there not there's an expectation that, that you'll do a certain amount of that as a faculty member. And then there's also a lot of both financial and um, other resources to support that. So um, it, that I just want to acknowledge that. Um, but yeah, I think, I think um, knowing how to um, connect with people, knowing, you know, how to, how to um, write grants, how to even more than any, uh, like some of these skills things, I think it's important for musicians to know what it is they want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think there's, there can be a real tendency to sort of try to copy other people's careers. Yeah. And, yep. um, 
And again, this is what I was talking about before is not really being clear on what it is that's most important to you. So I think once when musicians or just humans generally are um, clear on what it is that they want to do, who they want to serve, um, what contribution they want to make, then some of those other pieces become a little clearer because <laughs> otherwise it can okay. just seem like I just started listing off. You got to know how to have grants and tours and <laughs> like, that's just overwhelming. Um, yeah. You know, I actually don't know really much about uh, touring because mm-hmm. I don't really like, I like to be at home. <laughs> so being a touring <laughs> right. musician was never something that was super appealing to me because I don't really like to go away. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I think it's absolutely critical for, for um, musicians to have those um, that self-awareness. Uh, that you, it, it takes a long time to develop that. That's not just like a sit down and reflect for 10 minutes. That's like a, an ongoing process, sort of yeah. like balance. <laughs> and, um, and then some of these other skills like negotiating and, um, you know, really understanding the value of what we do. And, and so related to this, you know, I was thinking earlier about this that while I think it's critical for musicians to have entrepreneurial skills, mm-hmm. I also want to be a little bit careful not to, um, I also think it's important for musicians to have good jobs <laughs> that don't require yeah. <laughs> them to be hustling all the time, you know, like, yeah. so yeah. I don't want to sort of romanticize the entrepreneurial model too much mm-hmm. because, you know, I think it's really important that we acknowledge the, um, importance of the arts mm-hmm. in our culture, um, and, and fund them and <laughs> yeah. make it so that being an artist is something that you can, that you can do and have a sense of security and not feel like you're hustling all the time because, you know, there, there's definitely an element too where that the hustle can get in, it can hinder the creativity sometimes if, if, yeah. if there's a, you know, feeling worried about how you're going to pay you the rent is often not the, the best brain state to be in for, mm-hmm. Um, creativity and connection and all those sorts of things. So, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I take on a commission because it's going to help me pay the bills, that's probably not going to be the most genuine creative output <laughs> compared to taking on a project because I really believe in it and I value the collaboration and I'm inspired by something, right? And so, but it's it's tough to find that balance, I think, between being able to support yourself and your family if you have one and um, you know, but also taking on projects that are meaningful and yeah. self-fulfilling as well. It's, it's a tough, uh, tough line to cross there. Totally. And, and, you know, we all, whether you've got a really steady job as a musician, either in, you know, in academia or you've got a very stable sort of, um, touring situation or you are playing an orchestra or whatever the case, um, there's going to be elements that, that are really fulfilling and meaningful and elements that you're just like, well, this is part yeah. of my job. Like, yeah. um, yeah. they pay me and this is what I do. So, you know, it, 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 there's some of that in all of our work, but I, I just do, um, yeah, I do think it's really important for musicians to get the entrepreneurial skills and the self-knowledge to really apply those skills in a way that's going to be effective yeah. and meaningful for them. Yeah. And that culturally we do more to support, um, the livelihoods of artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's real. It's it's something I, I didn't 
think about till after I was done projects, what you were speaking about at the beginning about like the skills that we learn from doing them. <laughs> like when I, I started this little wind ensemble when I was in Toronto and maybe the brass trio with Aaron as well. And just think about, oh, I really like to play. So that's why I'm doing this. But to think yeah. about, oh yeah, we have to get gigs. We have to be good administrators. We have to be able to fundraise and do these kind of things are uh, really important skills that we can learn from and hopefully bring into our jobs with security <laughs> by the end of it. Um, but uh, as I mentioned before, uh, I've been really uh, lucky to count many of your former students as some of my closest colleagues, and uh, not only your students, but also former MUN colleagues, as well as current ones. Alan Close was my first trumpet professor at Mount Allison wow. University, so it's a s small world for sure. And um, so I always make sure to kind of do my James Lipton-level research here and see if I can... <laughs> find out some things that maybe aren't in your bio. Oh, <laughs> so I was talking to Dr. Jason Kassler, and uh, he said, she'll have some thoughts on music degrees <laughs> slash schools and how or whether uh, they're irrelevant. So I thought this would be a very interesting thing to talk about you. Get you on the record, you know? Um, yeah. So, yeah. Well, this is a huge question, obviously. Yeah. Um, this could be Two more its hours. own... Hang yeah. in there, folks. <laughs> its own podcast. <laughs> but I'll offer a few thoughts. Um, yeah. You know, in terms of relevance, I, I don't know if relevant is something that it's makes a lot of sense for an institution or a um, individual uh, administrator or instructor. Mm -hmm. So if you're sort of creating the programs... I don't know that we're in the best position to be assessing relevance. I don't actually think, I, I think it's, that's a really problematic way of looking at education generally that we in this uh, position of, you know, if you're working in a university environment, it's a position of enormous privilege. Uh, there's been a, probably been a long, long string of privilege that's gotten you there. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think it's very difficult for me to say what's going to be relevant for someone who might come to our program. And, and then if you just sort of add to that the fact that, like, I, if I want some information or advice or something um, that, that is going to be really relevant to me, so I'm almost 50, I don't know that an 80-year-old's the first place I'm going to go. I really like, you know, which is not to say that I, that I, that I don't value what, you know, um, people who've lived a long time contribute and have to offer, yeah. um, enormously, but I wouldn't say that relevance is near the top of that list. Mm. Um, so then I think, well, as a, how equipped am I to say what's going to be relevant for a 20 year old? Mm. So I do think that that relevant, the, the, the idea of like us wanting to be relevant, I think it's good for us to aim for relevance. But I think, I, I, I guess I look at this a little bit more um, through the lens of responsiveness. So how can we be responsive to, um, to what it is that our students are telling us that they need and want? Um, how can we create situations where students... Um, community members, anyone we seek to serve um, can actually provide meaningful feedback about what it is that they want and need from us. And then, then you know, have some mechanisms for assessing um, whether or not it's relevant. Mm -hmm. um, 
so that I the relevant piece, I was, it got me thinking. I was out on my walk <laughs> earlier, and I was like, relevant. That's interesting. Like, I'm just not yeah. sure that we're in a position to really say what's relevant. So we need to be a bit more responsive. And um, and then of course we, I think, in institutions generally, certainly in music programs, we really have some uh, work to do in terms of um, really, really taking in and reckoning with all the people who've been excluded from our, um, from our programs Mm -hmm. and how, you know, the, the systems through which our programs run and the structures just systematically include, um, uh, sorry, exclude, um, uh, you know, all kinds of different people. And so, um, you know, that's sort of an element of responsiveness too. To, to start being more responsive to our communities, more responsive, more inclusive of um, different um, ethnicities, um, different gender identifications, even just different sort of ideas about what music is for <laughs> and yeah. can do. And you know what I mean? And and just yep. different ways of thinking about, about music. Um, yeah, so I, I definitely see the... What I would love to see is for for um, programs to be a little bit more um, of a co-creative process um, and much more organic, you know, so that so that things can change as the world around us change changes as our students change. Um, we're able to sort of be kind of nimble and respond to those changes. And it's really hard in a university environment. Like, you know, if you want to change, you know, the description in the calendar for one of your courses, like the, the amount of work, it's, it's got to go through the funnel of, it's got to go through the funnel, but I just, you know, I really, I really love the idea and sort of, you know, sort of related to this idea about entrepreneurship as well, that, you know, we, I, I think we can we can be much, much, much more strategic and just sort of open about providing more sort of real world experiential learning opportunities for our students mm-hmm. um, so that they actually get a chance not just to kind of learn about these skills in our programs, but to um, actually like learn them, you know, create their own projects and um, and um, really learn them experientially. Um, I think yeah. there's there, that we could be way more, um, yeah, way more proactive about that. And, and, you know, one of the things that I think is unfortunate, I feel like I'm going sort of all over the place. No, <laughs> so I'm trying good. to capture a few threads because this is such a big, so just yeah. stop me. Um, you can edit <laughs> this if you need to. Um, but you know, when we're, when we talk about the, the idea of, of kind of knowing what it is that you want, um, from mm. your life and knowing what it is you want for, from your career. Um, I think it's really hard for students to develop that and to gain that self-knowledge and insight when they come into our programs and we basically say, like, you got to do this, then this, then this, then this, and it's all got to be in this yeah. order. And you've got a little bit of wiggle room for electives. Mm. Um, so, you know, yeah, if I, I think, I think, uh, the, the model really needs to shift so that rather than kind of um, institutions being the curators of what is value, what is valued, we need to be co-creators with our um, communities really broadly defined. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's such fantastic perspective. I'm so glad that you that you said that because here we are talking about being well-rounded as as musicians post postgrad, you know, and um, advocating for your own interests and and approaches to music, and yet institutionally, we as a you know music society are saying, except you can't be well-rounded when you're a student. You have to do these things. <laughs> so it's kind of mixed messaging. Yeah, it's it's tough. Yeah, like to be a student, I remember having having such wide interests as a student, but feeling restricted in terms of which courses I was actually able, either allowed to take or able to fit within the timetable of um, everything that was required. So how can we expect students to be well-rounded on the other side if we don't give them those opportunities in the first place, right? So lot, lots yeah. to think about. <laughs> totally. And I, and, I, and I think it can often, with there's, there's that sort of very practical element that you described. Um, and, th- and there's also can often be a little bit of an existential element where if, if people have these interests that they're not kind of um, supported um, in exploring or are just prevented from exploring, yeah. um, it, it can really um, shake people's sense of belonging. Yeah, and um, and like whether yeah whether they really you know deserve to be there or should be there you know how it it looks different for different people but I think that's um, not what we want. Yeah. Uh, So one thing that I found really really fascinating when we were doing our our research this week is that you have a one woman show called Girl Meets Tuba, which I just think is so awesome. Uh, And in this show. I understand that you explore some ideas around uh, breaking stereotypes associated with the tuba and telling your own personal story. So can you tell us a little bit about this show and why it was important for you to showcase your story in this way? Yeah, it might have just been hubris. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> needs to know my story. Um, uh, it started actually, there, there was a, a radio program on CBC. This is going back like 20 years ago, uh, that was called Outfront. And mm. you, they, they supported um, sort of freelancers, just like regular people, in producing these short radio pieces for, um, for, this, for CBC Radio. Mm-hmm. And so I um, created this program, or yeah, a program, what was it called? Joined at the Lip. <laughs> and it was so it was about my my relationship with the tuba and, and you know back then there were fewer tuba players than there um are now mm-hmm. and as i mentioned earlier i um you know i started off with flute like i had this sort of self concept of myself um as a uh you know this very like smart straight-laced responsible person then i switched to tuba And I ended up like sticking with the tuba when I was like, well, I'm going to go to Yale. That'll like help offset the tuba a little bit and like prove that I'm like still smart. And, um, you know, by the time I finished school, like I actually did have a lot of, um, like there just was a lot about all of this. It seems sort of contradictory to me. So I think a lot of it was that I was trying to sort of figure out, um, like, how did I get here? (laughs) It just really didn't feel you know, yeah, it's just like when I was a kid, if you told me like, when you grow up, you're going to be a professional tuba player, I'd be like, well, I don't think that's right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I think it was partly that I think it was partly that I was like, you know, 
this show, uh, if you, I was super into radio, even back then, this was pre podcast, mm -hmm. but I was super into like national public radio when I lived in the States and then CBC. And, um, so I liked the idea of creating radio and they also paid you pretty well. Like if you put a proposal mm -hmm. in and it was accepted, you, you got like $800, which at the time, um, yeah. and as a like person who had no money, uh, that was huge. <laughs> I played worse gigs. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, it was, it was really good. So, um, yeah, so I pitched the episode. I got matched up with this really, really awesome producer, and he helped me produce it. And the response that we got to the show was really overwhelming. Um, it got picked up uh, by radio stations, like, all over the place. And um, so I was sort of uh, a little bit staggered um, at how at the response to the to the little piece it was just like a little 13 minute radio piece mm -hmm. and so then I decided I would turn it into a one-woman show uh honestly I don't know what like what, I think this is one of those things that like that sounds cool to have a one-woman <laughs> show like I don't think there was a real like strategic thought process around mm -hmm. it but um yeah it definitely was great for me I think I'm I'm the sort of person who I I it's hard for me to sort of think through things and reason through things and sort of in real time. Like I, I think I, I, I need to be kind of like doing or making or writing and that it helps me figure out what it is that I think. It's hard for me to figure mm -hmm. out yeah. what I think by thinking. Yes. <laughs> so I sort of need some material. I can relate. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm sure. Yeah. As a composer. So, yeah. um, yeah, I just sort of felt like I had to kind of like figure myself out. And so I wrote this, um, I wrote this show. So that was, I first did it in like around 2003, 2004 was the first version of the show. And then after I moved here, um, I got a grant to sort of rewrite and remount the show in a revised and mm -hmm. sort of much slicker version from a theater perspective. Mm. Um, yeah, that's, that's Girl Very Meets cool. Tuba. Yeah. yeah. And is, awesome. is that, is that something that... that's ongoing? Sorry. To it <laughs> It isn't. Um, what I find about the show is that it, because it's, it really is a theater piece with some music. It's not like a recital with a bit of talking. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, it, it's the rehearsal process is incredibly, um, intensive. It's not like rehearsing for a recital where you sort of can like go and rehearse for an hour. It's you, it's much longer blocks of time. It's yeah. a lot more, it's very physical. And the way that the show is staged is it takes it it's it's almost takes place like a sort of theater in the round. Mm. So we we would use whatever the features of the venue were as like so in the the first place I did it in this little little hall here in Newfoundland, there was like a little storage closet. And so we used that as like to pretend it was a practice room. So at a certain point in the show, I'd like go in and like go into the, to the storage closet and pretend I was practicing. And, yeah. and so just working all that out is incredibly time consuming. So yeah. um, it, it just hasn't been a regular part of my activities because like everything else has to stop yeah. when I do that. that makes sense. Um, and the other thing is that once I found, like once I sort of did it, I mounted it here and then I did it again a year later as an adaptation with the Newfoundland Symphony Orchestra, which was super fun. Mm. Um, I kind of felt done with it. Like I'd kind of been working on the show for like almost 10 years in some capacity. Mm -hmm. And I, I sort of felt like, yeah, I think we're ready to move on to other things. So, Is it anywhere? Can we see it? There's a there trailer a somewhere. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll have to do some digging. Yeah, you have to yeah. do everything lives online forever. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> have to be careful. Have to be careful. Yeah. Uh, well, um, we have sadly come to our last question, but I will take this time to just mention that the three of us are going off into bonus episode land after this for a sh- to <laughs> record a short bonus episode. Who knows what will be said? No one does. Yeah. Um, but you can <laughs> hear that bonus episode and more by becoming a patron of BRP by checking out patreon.com slash bandroompod. Um, but in regular bandroom fashion, if you could give one piece of advice to up-and-coming performers and educators, what would it be? Well, um, I don't really like to give advice because, again, along with my ideas about relevance, like, I don't know what people should do. Um, However, I think this is, I I will be a champion for this that I think is good for all humans, not just performers and educators, which is spend more time in nature or even just around nature. Um, Mm -hmm. I noticed Kate has lots of plants, so (laughs) if you, you know, it's not always possible for us to... Um, be yeah, you're a little You're're nature deprived there. Yeah, wall. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a succulent somewhere. I know that. Okay, yeah, I've got a I've got a a blank wall too. But I have trees outside my window. But I just yes. think uh, being in nature or around nature just restores us in so many ways and brings us back to our humanity and back to our connection with the natural world. And I think there's just something that's so profound about being in nature that doesn't matter what it is that you do um it really just adds a lot so that's my advice slash championing (laughs) yes wholeheartedly agree and actually well the episode will will be a little bit later but yesterday as of when we're recording this was earth day so this is great timing to be yeah giving reminders about reestablishing a relationship with nature so thank yeah. you for that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I just wanted to thank you so much for taking the time um, and being so generous with your time uh, and, and being on the podcast. And I don't know, I don't know about you, Kate, but this has been, it's been very, very, very refreshing to not yes. talk about band <laughs> and to talk about yeah. like music and being a person and, you know. Because uh, so often we get stuck in our own little snow globes of whatever our fields are, and it, it, this this has been really a treat to uh, to talk to you today, and and thank you for all that you're doing, and and uh, and the the inspiration and knowledge that you're imparting to all your fantastic students at, at Memorial, and uh, yeah, just thanks for for being here. Yeah, well, thank you for that, and um, thanks for having me. It really has been just a delight, especially at this really busy time of a really <laughs> challenging year it's really just felt like a break and a breath of fresh air to to chat with you too thanks so much for spending time with us in the band room if you want to learn more about anything that we discussed in today's episode check out the links found on our website, bandroompod.com. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe to the Bandroom Podcast. Give us a rating and review and tell all your friends about how much you enjoyed it. 
If you really love the show, maybe you should consider donating to our Patreon page where you can support BRP and get some extra incentives in return. Or you can buy some sweet BRP merch, helping to offset podcast hosting costs and investments into new equipment so that we can continue to bring you great content and great people. Follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube to keep up with what's on the go. If you have any thoughts on today's episode, leave us a comment on our website, bandroompod.com, and your comment might be featured in a future episode of BRP. Stay safe and be well, bandies. Thanks again for stopping by the band room. Thank you.